Welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm John Fletcher, Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ, and with me is Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor, and we're discussing the November the 18th issue of the journal. And on the front cover, we have what looks like a glass of milk and a jar of possibly beans. I think they're soybeans, John. Uh, This relates to two articles in the journal, uh, this issue. One is a piece of research about uh, vitamin D levels in early childhood. And this was showing that uh, amongst Canadian schoolchildren, those who drank non-cow's milk uh, were more likely to have lower levels of vitamin D. I don't think there was any cases of rickets as such, um, but certainly there was a a fairly clear association with uh, non-cow's milk consumption and lower levels of vitamin D. And the other is a commentary on on that research. So, uh, Kirsten, you commissioned the commentary. What's the message on milk? The message, the main message of the commentary is that not all milks are created equal. And this comes down to the fortification of milk. Cow's milk has a standard fortification level in terms of vitamin D, but non-cow's milks, which include soy milk, goat's milk, and uh, rice and almond milks, are not subject. There are so many milks. They're they're not subject to uh, standardisation in terms of vitamin D levels, and you have to check the labels very carefully. So the commentary is looking at what the researchers found in the study, and it concludes that um, non-cow's milk beverages, including goat's milk and plant-based milk alternatives, are fortified with vitamin D at the discretion of the manufacturer, and that parents, caregivers should be alert to this when choosing milks for their children to ensure that they get enough vitamin D. There's quite a lot in this issue about about food. One of the bits of research that I'm pleased that we've got in is, is a randomised control trial, r- rather large one, um, called the PREDIMED trial, about 2,300 people, uh, looking at the um, uh, effects primarily on cardiovascular outcomes of the Mediterranean diet. It's slightly more complicated than, than that because uh, the, the two interventions in this trial were Mediterranean diets plus nuts um, or Mediterranean diets plus um, quite a lot of, of olive oil. One of the strengths, in a sense, of this trial was that the, uh, the intervention w- was not too draconian. It was just advice, um, which makes it all the more surprising that they did find this reduction in cardiovascular events published in another journal. But the outcome that uh, we're publishing um, this issue is uh, that of the effect of the Mediterranean diet on the metabolic syndrome. Now, of course, most people uh, recruited into this trial um, were overweight or, or had some abnormalities in, in uh, cholesterol or uh, blood sugar. So a lot of them were almost bound to get metabolic syndrome. But uh, those on the Mediterranean diet interventions um, were more likely to recover from, i.e. that is revert back to uh, normal, from the med- metabolic syndrome. So of those who had it, Uh, and took the Mediterranean diet, uh, there was uh, a hazard ratio of 1.35, that is they were more likely, 35% more likely, to uh, recover from the metabolic syndrome and go the other side of the line. Um, So this is, as I say, quite an encouraging result, secondary outcome of the trial of course, so more research is needed, and it doesn't apply to everybody because this was a fairly um, specific group. 
but encouraging in that this was um, advice and nothing, nothing too difficult to follow. That's great. That's really encouraging. It's, it's an eternal puzzle, isn't it? I mean, in, in Western society, people are growing larger. More and more of them are, are becoming overweight. And in, in a sense, um, that's clearly because we're eating too much. Uh, consume more calories than you um, use up and your weight goes up. That's simple, but the answer isn't quite so simple. How do we actually get people to lower their consumption? And that was something that you and I wrote, wrote the editorial on. Um, what was the message um, of that editorial? Well, our editorial was um, tagged on the study that was published in another journal last year that looked at worldwide rates of obesity in the last decade and showed that across the board, whether it's Western countries or developing countries, obesity is on the rise. And there are a lot of interventions, targets to reduce obesity by a certain date, uh, to end childhood obesity by the year 2030. And we were considering in our editorial, what would that take? Well, the missing piece of the puzzle is government leadership and government action on high fat, high salt, high sugar, unhealthy foods. Governments are offering public health advice to the individual, but can they take action to tax high fat and unhealthy foods or to make sure that healthier foods are more available, uh, more accessible and more cheap and unhealthy foods are more expensive? So a sort of a calorie tax. This is where we always get criticism. People will say, how can you tax unhealthy foods because it is people who are underprivileged and or who cannot um, do not have the purchasing power to buy healthy foods that will buy unhealthy foods primarily. So then we are taxing the poor. But I think it is more complex than that for government to be seen to be taking action to make unhealthy foods less widely uh, accessible and healthier food choices more widely accessible. So uh, I think we should um, get off the subject of food if that's at all possible now. Um, <laughs> is there any medicine in this issue of the journal? Well, I think we've got a bulging practice bulging. section. <laughs> we've got uh, articles in the practice section which are very clinically focused. And one of the things that we're covering, which you mentioned in our last podcast, is articles related to Choosing Wisely Canada which is about stopping doing things that you would ordinarily do because they're unhelpful. So two main areas, there's a, a five things article and a decisions article. What should we be doing less of? In this issue, we're looking at um, nasogastric feeding in dementia. I Don't think also the uh, peg feeding, the uh, percutaneous feeding in, in patients with dementia. Absolutely. It's about this artificial feeding and how it shouldn't be used as a first line, that there are ways that you can use to get patients to eat normally and still be nutritionally well. Yes, a lot harder work, certainly, uh, feeding, feeding patients with dementia. What struck me about that was that there, there appears to be no evidence that putting in a tube actually uh, prolongs life or makes patients happier which would seem to be a, an important outcome. Exactly, and, it, and it's associated with lots of agitation, increased use of restraints, and pressure ulcers in many cases. So, so it's harmful too. Something to consider not doing. Absolutely. 
Something I would never have considered doing, I must say, was uh, a, a needle washout in, in patients with uh, osteoarthritis of the knee, but that's one of the ones that we're asked not to do. Um, one of the things I would have considered was glucosamine, and I must say I'm slightly disappointed that I can no longer recommend glucosamine to people with osteoarthritis, but uh, it seems to be that there isn't much evidence to support it. I remember when the first meta-analyses started coming out about glucosamine and chondroitin, there was much of the same disbelief. And many pri primary care practitioners said, well, pat if patients are willing to pay for it, there might be some minor benefit and I'll continue advising them to use it. But now it seems clearer that there is actually no benefit at all to using glucosamine in preventing the progression of osteoarthritis or improving the symptoms. So something we should, uh, as doctors, think about not doing. And I think, really, the guidance coming out from Choosing Wisely Canada is, is, is making us think again about what really works and uh, concentrating our efforts in, in areas that, where we know there's evidence and perhaps causing us to uh, pause and discuss with our patients things that, that might not be beneficial. And what I'm finding really beneficial about these articles is that they highlight the harms that perhaps uh, haven't been thought about that there are usually attendant harms with, with things that we think are harmless. So one of the articles that I do hope will be useful to clinicians is the uh, update of the uh, Canadian Cardiovascular uh, National Guidelines, the Sea Change Guidelines. Um, quite a lot of things have changed and uh, updates and things. Can, what were the highlights for you? Well, what really interested me was that they have now started to recommend that we measure BMI in children aged 2 to 17. Because they have cardiovascular disease? Well, no, because uh, high BMI in childhood is now recognized as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So this is taking prevention right, right back to childhood? Absolutely. And then there are uh, updated recommendations regarding salt intake in patients with hypertension and a lot of changes in the recommendations on how to treat patients with diabetes, another risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So worth reading to uh, keep up to date with, uh, with the changes in practice? Yes, because they're looking at eight guidelines and harmonising the recommendations from those eight. So did you read the uh, What's Your Call This issue? Yes, yeah, a very interesting uh, article about a middle-aged man who's having hallucinations. This was um, an unemployed immigrant to Canada who came in uh, complaining about spirits possessing him and voices in his head. Turns out that he had a, a physical explanation for the diagnosis. What was I it? Well, I wouldn't want to give anything away because half the fun of what's your call is working through it. Suffice it to say that uh, I'm pleased to say that one of the things on my list was uh, neurosyphilis because that, uh, that would go with anything neurological, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Uh, that wasn't the diagnosis, but in the um, true tradition of TV dramas, a patient got uh, high-dose steroids as part of their treatment. Uh, but I won't give away whether that uh, cured him or not. I'll read the What's Your Call? Kirsten, you've been putting together some uh, interesting stuff on the uh, back page, and I know, I know we're actually reviewing that uh, for the December issue. Um, so this is, I think, the last salon... Um, where you've given us a head-to-head -head, uh, for uh, two opposing views about end-of-life care. John, this is a kind of a transition article from the old salon to the new back page, which as yet remains nameless and will be revealed 
in the first issue in December. Now, what we've done here is we've taken two articles from CMAJ blogs, shortened them and put them side by side, and they are two views on the assisted dying debate from some prominent voices in that area. So um, tell me about uh, what do you think? Well, that's interesting because I think uh, we all have a slightly different view at CMAJ of what we would want the outcome of the law to be. I think if I consider it purely for myself, I would like that option to be available to me one day. I would like to have the choice, much in, in the way that, 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 for example, and this has been a comparison that's been made, the um, abortion law was not about saying abortion is right, it's about saying women have the choice as to what they do with their bodies. And I think I would like the choice, which is interesting. One of the, um, one of the two sides in our last Salon article says that in places where assisted dying has been legalized, just being given the choice sometimes makes people feel much more comfortable about not choosing assisted dying. And I think, I mean, James, James Downer uh, expresses this view quite well and, and points out that really, I think, uh, quite a large proportion of people in Canada and, and, and doctors would be favoring, in favour of some kind of physician-assisted death. However, if you look at the, at the argument on the other side, it's also really understandable is that physicians don't want to be the, the people who have to carry it out. What do you think about it, John? Well, there is the other side, and Tom Koch is, is putting the other side. Um, I feel uncomfortable with the whole notion of, of, of doctors presiding over the death of their patients. And uh, while I respect the argument that people might wish to choose to end their lives, I think death and killing people is, is, is never, is never a, a good thing. Um, it may be something that uh, is, is uh, a last option. But um, I see the law as, as setting boundaries on what we do and protecting the vulnerable. And um, Tom Koch espouses this quite, quite well to, to say that the, the intention of, of Canada's laws was to preserve uh, the sanctity of life and to preserve uh, equality and freedom of choice, um, but not necessarily uh, freedom to die. So we have it there, both, both views e expressed in the back pages uh, of, of Salon, and this debate's going to be going on for some time before it's settled, I'm sure. That uh, wraps up this issue of the CMAJ podcast on November the 18th. John Fletcher and Kirsten Patrick.